You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. All right, welcome to the Lozano Smith podcast. I'm your co-host, Joshua Whiteside, senior counsel from the firm's San Luis Obispo office and co-practice group leader for the student practice group. I've got a great topic for us to talk about today with uh, two really awesome attorneys out of the Walnut Creek office. We've got uh, Haley and Jen. Um, Why don't we go ahead and have you two introduce yourself? We'll start with Haley. Hi, I'm Haley Fagan from the Walnut Creek office. I'm senior counsel here. And Jen? I am Jennifer Baldessari. I am a partner in the Walnut Creek office in the special education practice group, and I also co-chair the special education practice group. Excellent. Well, welcome. We are going to talk about uh, special education inclusion uh, today, and it, this is something that, uh, you know, in, the, in my practice dealing with student issues, there is a lot of crossover uh, at times with the special education issues. So I'm excited to learn more about this and, and help teach administrators across the state about this issue or dive into the weeds. So um, let's go ahead and, and get into it. Um, Jen, what is inclusion? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us today, Josh. We really appreciate this opportunity to talk about inclusion because I do think it's such a wonderful topic and something that after the pandemic, maybe we need to be thinking about reconsidering. So inclusion really is the idea that a child will work on his or her, their IEP goals within the regular classroom alongside their typical peers. While we have another terminology that sometimes is reflected in inclusion called mainstreaming, I see those two terms as very separate. Mainstreaming refers to the child who is expected to meet the curriculum of a regular classroom with supplementary aids and services. So inclusion is really the idea that the general education folks are supporting the child's IEP goals whereas mainstreaming is more about the student being able to meet those minimum curriculum standards through supplementary aids and supports. Well, Haley, why does does inclusion matter? Where did this come, where did this concept come from, and um, why is this so important when we're talking about our special education population? Yeah, so it's interesting. The IDEA, which is where all of the special education law really comes from, doesn't actually define the term inclusion, but in a lot of ways, it's the basis for why the IDEA exists. Um, So I think the best answer to that question is really to look back at what was happening before the IDEA um, and related laws were in existence. And the reality is, unfortunately, um, in the 1960s and 70s, students with disabilities were just not being educated in the same way as their non-disabled peers. Um, At the time of the passage of the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, or the EHA, which is the predecessor of the IDEA, um, only one in five children with disabilities were being educated in regular schools in this country, and many states actually had laws that excluded children with certain specific disabilities from being educated in the public um, school system. And so really following Brown versus Board of Education, which I think 
folks have some familiarity with, which happened um, where the decision came out in 1954, uh, families and advocates um, really started thinking about the ways in which segregation and exclusion pertained to students with disabilities and the way in which perhaps we could do better by our youth with disabilities. Um, so it was really that momentum following Brown versus Board of Education that led to the passage of what then became the IDEA. Um, research also throughout the years prior to that time um, and since really suggests that students with disabilities have far better academic and social outcomes when they are um, educated in inclusive environments with peers who, are, who do not have disabilities. Um, and actually, there's also research to suggest that the opposite is true in, in some respects, that students who don't have disabilities um, often have gains in all kinds of skills when they're um, educated alongside peers who are different than them and maybe differently abled. Um, so there's a lot of research support for, for inclusion. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't mean, none of this means that inclusion is easy. I think it's easy when we think about it broadly to see why we wouldn't want to be segregating um, any group of students from, from the general education environment. And at the same time, um, it's really difficult when it comes down to student by student, how we do inclusion um, based on students' unique and specific needs and circumstances. Um, I think, for example, we, you know, a one-on-one -on -one aid, right, for, for a student in kindergarten, that feels very different in terms of inclusion or exclusion than it does for a, a student in high school, right? Like um, the, the age of the student and the circumstances specific to their needs um, really change the picture um, and the conversation that needs to be had around how we do inclusion for any particular student. So let's uh, so let's get back in our time machine. We were in the 50s and then in the 70s with the creation of the IDA. As we move along in time to say like the 90s and the 2000s, you know, that's when a lot of the current parents of, of, uh, of students uh, that we are that we have in our schools now kind of grew up. Um, and I don't want to age anyone here on this podcast, right? But I'll just speak to myself. You know, that's when I was growing up. And, you know, maybe there was like one or two um, and, uh, you know, you know, mostly going to be experiencing this inclusion with uh, students with disabilities during recess or during lunch um, rather than necessarily that often in the classroom. So it seems like inclusion has kind of made slow and steady gains. And then now it seems like today the classroom looks just very different maybe for some of these uh, parents who have a different understanding of what the classroom looked like when they were growing up versus now. Is that, is that fair to say? Do we have a different environment or is it still relatively the same level of inclusion that we're seeing, say, 20 years ago? I think it's, it's definitely fair to say that there have certainly been differences between now and the 60s, but I would hope, and I think the goal is always to be as inclusive as possible. Um, there is a strong presumption in the law that students be educated in the most sort of inclusive environment possible. And so I think we are constantly moving in that direction. 
I think post-COVID, as Jennifer has mentioned, we have sort of additional opportunities to, to reflect on that since we've all experienced school in a different way over the last several years um, and have a different perspective on what it means for kids to be in a building together and to have that social experience and that academic experience. So um, I do think that there have been gains, certainly, but now is a good time to kind of rethink um, and and recheck in about where we are and, and the progress that we still have to make. And so with that progress, I mean, we're really looking at um, the environment in the classroom, right? Can you talk about what, what that environment should look like or what do we what are we analyzing when we're looking at the classroom environment with this idea of a strong presumption of inclusion of special education students into the general education classroom? Sure. So the IDEA doesn't define inclusion and it doesn't require or mandate that every classroom be a full inclusion classroom or that every student with disabilities be fully included in a general education classroom. Uh, what it does require, though, and what is uh, inscribed in federal regulations is that to the maximum extent appropriate, children with disabilities, um, including children in public educational settings and in private institutions, are educated with children who are not disabled, and to the extent that they are removed from those general education environments, um, we want to be making sure, and the law requires, that those removals occur only if the nature or the severity of their disability is such that education in the regular classes with the use of supplementary aids and services cannot be achieved satisfactorily. So there's, there's a real presumption and a real push toward having students with disabilities be included in the general education classroom or environment, and that environment includes both the classroom environment and outside the classroom, regular educational environment is defined in the law to encompass other settings in the school, including lunchrooms and, and the playground, um, to the maximum extent appropriate. Um, and if that requires supplementary aids or services to accomplish, that's the, that's the goal, that's the idea, and that's the requirement. And we sometimes refer to this idea as being the least restrictive environment. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. Or LRE, as we like to throw around our acronyms in the special education world. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> well, related to that, we've got, you know, like I said, this time machine, we're moving forward. And, and uh, something really big happened in 1994 uh, with the Rachel H. case. Jen, what, what is the Rachel H. case and why does it apply in this conversation? Yeah, as we talk about least restrictive environment or LRE, um, as our acronym suggests, we really look at case law to kind of parse out for us what um, we mean by least restrictive environment, what factors go into making the determination whether or not this placement for this specific child is the least restrictive setting. And in that Rachel H. case that you just mentioned, Josh, that's where we get this four-factor test. Some of the most important factors, I would say, that IEP teams should be considering when they're looking at um, where to place a child. 
So those four factors, I'm going to go through them just briefly here, are whether or not the child is receiving academic benefit from placement in the regular classroom compared to maybe some benefits that they would be receiving in a special education classroom. So that's our first factor. Our second factor is non-academic benefits that a child would get from being educated in a regular education classroom. The third factor is any potential negative effects a child's presence may have on the education of others in the classroom, which would be including the teacher. And then the fourth factor is a cost to the school district of providing the supplementary aids and services necessary to support the student in a regular classroom setting. So we're really looking at these four-factor tests when making this determination, and every one of the factors should balance either in favor of placing the student in the regular education classroom or placing the student in a more restrictive setting. That said, the Ninth Circuit just recently came out with another case uh, that was last year, so that was 2022, in which they analyzed one of our factors even more specifically. And that factor was the first one. Recall the first factor is academic benefits a child receives from placement in the regular education classroom alongside their peers. So in this case, we're finding out now that in order to determine academic benefit, which again is another squishy word that we look to courts to determine what does that mean? What are we looking at when we're looking at academic benefit? Well, the Ninth Circuit said that we're looking at the progress towards meeting the student's IEP goals, not necessarily a failure to meet grade level standards. So it's less about grade level standards and more about what goals do you put in place for the student? And is the student, even with modified curriculum, And even with some of these supplementary aids and supports, is the student able to meet those goals or at least make a lot of progress towards them? If the answer is no, then that factor may weigh in favor of a more restrictive placement. However, if that factor is yes, even though the student isn't necessarily meeting grade level standards, then the factor should be viewed in favor of keeping the student in the general education setting. So how does this DR case uh, versus Redondo Beach, this new 2022 case, how does that change, practically speaking, um, what administrators should be looking at when they're looking at developing these IEP goals or analyzing the progress on, on these goals? Well, I actually think that the fact pattern a little bit in, in this DR case that we've talked about is instructive um, in as much as... Um, so the ninth, the ninth Circuit actually overruled the lower court's decision and and the administrative judge's decision on this case. So this wasn't necessarily a straightforward or easy decision necessarily, right? We have we have judges at different levels having different opinions about this. One of the things that the lower court said, and one of the ways that the lower court characterized this particular student situation, um, he had been in a general education classroom, I want to say most of his day, or at least more than 50% of his day. But the way that witnesses and his teachers had described um, 
how he was doing in that classroom was sort of as an island unto himself. At least that's that's the way that the lower court sort of imagined it or or spun this, right? That while you know maybe the 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 class was doing a math a math lesson during the day and his peers would be working on grade level standard math, he would also be working on math projects, but his he was at a lower grade level sort of standard and the curriculum and the, the curriculum had been modified to sort of fit where he was at. Um, the lower court viewed that as him being, quote, an island on his own. Um, the Ninth Circuit, on the other hand, said not so much. Right. And I think when you compare, um, when you think about there's the academic benefit, but there's also the social benefit. And right, that's the, that's the second factor in the Rachel H. analysis, right? Exactly, exactly. No one at any level of the the proceedings on this case had said that the benefit, the the sort of social benefit to the student would be more in a pulled out um, environment than it was in the general education environment. So the idea that the student was an island unto himself just because he was working on modified curriculum was not something that the Ninth Circuit was persuaded by. Um, so part of this, I think, is it's easy to imagine, when we think about students being educated alongside each other, I think it's easy to think that that has to mean that they're all seeing the same worksheet. <laughs> um, and the reality is, when it comes to inclusion, at least according to the Ninth Circuit, that's not the case, um, and that students one of the one of the findings and um, pretty strongly worded in in the opinion was that students shouldn't be penalized when it comes to inclusion and their right to inclusion just because their their um, curriculum needs to be modified significantly. So their tests could be different, their homework could be different, um, and so this really is kind of highlighting the need to really balance all of these Rachel H. factors, right? It's not just because there's going to be some significant changes to the academic curriculum that the student is receiving doesn't necessarily mean that automatically leads to exclusion or pulling out that student to a different classroom setting. Is that fair to say the impact of this DR case? Yes, I believe that's fair to say. So how are we doing on on inclusion and least restrictive environment if you know in light of this decision and I know the return from covid has presented challenges for for all students really um, in in terms of the ability for students to um, make progress just generally um, in the academic world as we kind of recover from all of that with different learning recovery efforts I know the le- we've talked about on this podcast different uh, learning recovery uh, types of legislation that's been passed over the last two years or so. So, um, how are we doing? Well, we're we're forward in the time machine for sure, but we still have we still have work to do. I think um, one of the one of the areas that sort of shows the work that we still have to do is when you look at the data about inclusion and and what students are spending more time in the general education environment versus outside of the general education environment, there are some notable disparities that still exist. Um, So there are disparities by disability type. It tends to be that students 
with intellectual disabilities and, and multiple disabilities tend to be pulled out of the general education environment at higher rates than students with some other disability types. Um, and, you know, there's some federal guidance out there that, that suggests that we shouldn't be making placement determinations on the basis of category of disability or severity of disability. So the fact that there are disparities and that those disparities exist is, is evidence that we could be maybe doing a little bit better. We could put some more effort in, in, into that. Um, there are also, unfortunately, still disparities by race and ethnic group. Um, so it tends to be the case that white students spend more time in the general education classroom than some other groups and students of color. I think that some recent data has suggested that African-American students with autism spend perhaps the least amount of time in general education environments. And so, you know, when we when we see that, those are those are areas that we have opportunities to improve. And I think it matters to think about how how these different types of, of disparities and inequities can kind of pile on top of each other and really impact our students. And so the fact that, you know, inclusion is so important to students with disabilities, also stemming back from Brown versus Board, it's 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 important for everyone. Um, and so we have work to do, but that's okay. It's a good thing. One and COVID, you know, created uh, a lot of re- put, forced really school districts to put a lot of resources towards their independent study programs, and so those were all built up. They had staff assigned to them. They had uh, curriculum developed related to that. I, you know, are we seeing a lot of um, special education students being referred for those programs, or how is how is that? able to work or not able to work um, in this current format? Because I, I believe there was something that we had to deal with where we had to provide an opportunity for our special ed parents at these IEP meetings to think about whether or not they want uh, independent study for uh, their child or not. Where are we on, on that issue, Jen? Yeah, so um, I have seen some independent study requests Still, however, I have to say a majority of those have died back, and a lot of um, what we're seeing is now a bigger and greater focus on SEL curriculum and other types of curriculums in the classroom that can help support these ideas of inclusion that are making families feel more supported in a general education environment or comprehensive campus environment. So I do think that, as Haley was saying, there has been a focus and we have moved the time machine forward. Like you're saying, Josh, I do think that we're even moving it forward more after COVID. But I do think that there's still some opportunities to grow and progress here. And I think we can talk about where do we start to do that? How do we do that? Yeah. So how do we what do we need to do moving forward? What are some good next steps and things that our administrators can do over the summer and into the next school year to address some of the concerns that are being raised in these cases on on special education inclusion? I think there are three things. I'm going to let Haley dive into those things a little bit more, but I'd like to just outline for you what those sort of things are for me. First would be um, having a good framework in place, uh, not just for your special education team and staff, 
but even pre-referral, uh, right, like MTSS, things like that, um, that would start to frame this out. The second thing for me would be something like training, getting everybody on the same page, training staff, training special education folks and general education folks to be able to implement some of these types of services and supports and goals in classrooms to get them involved. And then the last thing for me would be regular check-ins to make sure that the frameworks and the trainings are really working to support all children, not just um, the children that end up receiving the most support, but we're wanting to look at other types of um, disparities that, that Haley was talking about as well, including are we still segregating certain students by type of disability or by race or ethnic group? Is that something uh, that we could then start to look at and rework through this sort of three-step model? Yeah, so just picking up, picking up on what Jen said, I think that the state's focus right now on MTSS or multi-tiered system of support um, I know is something that a lot of school administrators are probably already dealing with and thinking about. And I think the benefit of, of having those conversations already in the air is that those conversations are really about looking at differentiated approaches for different abilities and different students and, and student needs. And so one of the questions that seems like a very easy question to ask, maybe maybe less easy to answer, but we'll get there, is how do we how do we incorporate special education systems and programming into those conversations about our MTSS frameworks? Um, how do we incorporate ideas about needs of students with disabilities into those frameworks? Are our special education staff really being folded into those larger school and district-wide um, approaches and, and re, rethinking and um, opportunities to sort of reframe um, the way that we do school. So that's, that's one big thing. I think MTSS also is a good time to really think about some of the disparities that we talked about and whether or not there's a conversation being had in our MTSS discussions specifically about disparities and disparities both inside special education and outside special education. Um, and, and real quick, Kayla, I think this is really critical because we are getting so much more communication from parents, from community members, from board members, from even administrators and teachers talking about students who are being disruptive in the classroom or, you know, that at least that's the subjective sort of understanding of what's going on. And, you know, based off of changes in student discipline laws and this idea of inclusion, um, oftentimes our kids with special needs are often causing disruption in the classroom. And there's a feeling amongst teachers and other people within the, these communities that there's not enough uh, being done to counsel and to change and to um, discipline either formally or informally or to have there be progress made um, for these kids to try to not 
conduct those types of behaviors anymore. And there's a lot of frustration I'm feeling. Um, I'm, you know, we're going to be uh, talking about bargaining in an upcoming podcast. And this is one hot topic that we're seeing across the state is this feeling like teachers are not feeling like they have enough tools or resources to be able to access to control the classroom. So uh, I think this, this discussion is a really important one for administrators to be thinking about, like, how are we using our multi-tiered system of supports, our MTSS frameworks, to try to address that and create something that's workable, that there's a process, that there's that it's clearly understandable by all parties involved, that we're having constant communication with our families, with students with disabilities to understand that, you know, it's not just anything goes, but also at the same time, we have to be cautious not to just immediately exclude them just because of a minor disruption to the classroom. That's a, that's a, it's a work in progress, like we keep saying here. Um, any, any thoughts on, on, you know, how folks can address those issues in a better way going forward, or is it really unique to each school district at this point? Well, I have a couple, I don't know if my thoughts are going to answer your questions, but I definitely have a couple of thoughts based on what you said. Excellent. One, one is that I think one of the things that COVID did um, and, and the return to school after COVID is really highlight the ways in which some of those behavioral concerns really are linked to disability or can be linked to disability, right? In my experience, just anecdotally, a lot of um, I would agree, and I don't. I don't think that there is a school administrator out there who didn't see that the return to in-person school, there were just all kinds of behavioral issues and disciplinary issues that seemed to be more extreme than prior to COVID. And I think that I think that we all kind of had an experience of what mental health can do in, to behavior. And so, in some ways, I think COVID has has shed a light on the ways in which behavior can be related to disability, which maybe is a learning moment for all of us. So that's one thought that I had. Another thought that I had, um, when you bring up discipline, um, discipline is another arguable form of exclusion, right? So it's it's important to talk about when, when we're talking about inclusion, because it makes sense that we would want to be thinking about our disciplinary policies. That is another way of even for the short term, excluding um, students. So I think that those are two really Im- sort of important thoughts. Well, <laughs> I always think my thoughts are important. <laughs> but I do think I do think that those are two two things to think about. Um, the other thought I had based on what you said was, I think some of this is about looking at, you know, are there tools? Are there tools that our schools need that they don't have? So in terms of curriculums, um, Jen mentioned SEL or social emotional learning. Um, Are we missing curriculums that we should have? Universal design for learning is another sort of broader umbrella. Um, And and maybe, maybe one way of addressing this is having districts kind of look at what what tools they already have available and where there may be holes um, that they could be looking to fill. And then the second thing I thought is really your question goes into training, I think, which was the second of, of Jen's points about how we can move forward. And I think there's a lot of holes in terms of 
training, certainly when it comes to special education. I think maybe a lot of general education teachers would be surprised to hear that there's actually a federal requirement that states um, appropriately and adequately train folks on special education issues. And I think that uh, for a lot of educators, they probably don't feel adequately or appropriately trained. And so there's there's room for some more training. Um, and it's not just any folks. We're talking about general education staff and special education staff. So making sure that we are fully meeting our obligations and expectations in training staff, but going deeper in terms of what to train staff. If we have a general education uh, teacher who doesn't know how to implement certain IEP goals, maybe that's a training opportunity. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to take this moment to, to uh, market ourselves a little bit. So speaking of training, we've got our 2023 Special Education Legal Consortium. We've got a virtual workshops scheduled for September 12th and 21st this year. Um, and so we'll be having some information associated with this podcast available for you at lazanasmith.com forward slash podcast. So that way you can get that training. We'll talk about legal updates. We'll talk about alternative dispute resolutions and some dealing with post-COVID behavior. So uh, if, you're, if you've made it this far into this podcast, you're clearly passionate about this, uh, about this topic. So that's a great way to get more information and understanding from these fine folks here at Lozano Smith about uh, this subject. Uh, Haley and Jen, what else do we need to do with the kind of next steps? I mean, it seems like in addition to this training, in addition to this framework, it, it's just kind of keep coming back, right? Regularly revisiting, like Jen said, right to this issue. What do you recommend that we do in regards to just trying to relearn and re and, and keep making progress as we move into the future? I think regularly checking in, but also recognizing, do I feel siloed from another group in my own uh, school district? Or do I feel like I'm a part of the entire movement? So just the feeling alone of feeling siloed in something is, is not a good sign that maybe we want to revisit and go back through these sort of three models again, which is maybe revisit the framework, maybe revisit the concepts of training, but having that check-in and even having self-check-ins where am I feeling siloed? Asking yourself that. And I think another good way of kind of making sure that you don't feel siloed, right, is working with our team of attorneys and making sure that you're, you know, in lockstep with us and, and, uh, or whoever your legal counsel is and, um, trying to make progress on these issues, um, whether it is coordinating with us, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, whether it's coordinating with us for trainings, uh, whether or not it's, uh, having us be there to talk to staff, um, your administrative team, or even your board about how important this topic is. Um, just, I'm going to throw to some final thoughts for you both as uh, we're, we're running late on this podcast here. Um, Haley, why don't we start with you and then we'll go to Jen. Final thoughts on just this idea, this topic of inclusion and how we can make progress on this as a, as a whole here in California school districts. 
Well, I think it's just important to keep in mind how central this idea is to the project of the IDEA um, and why why it matters. Um, and the reality is that the better we get at it, the better all of our students will do. Um, and so I think that there's, while it may be difficult, I think that there's some hope kind of at the end of that difficulty. Um, and I think that over the last couple of years, we've seen school districts and individual teachers and administrators do incredible and amazing and really creative things um, when faced with COVID. And so I think um, I have confidence that we are creative enough to to think to think about these things and and make differences. So I, we can do it. <laughs> yeah, I would just say that good communication really helps build trust and good positive relationships internally and with families. Um, So I think really the trajectory of change here starts with the trust building, the communication and the relationships. And when you can get that established, I think you're going to see a lot more momentum in the three areas that we talked about. And I hope I get to see everybody at Selk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope so, too. Uh, Well, Jen, Haley, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today and giving us your insights. Um, If you would like additional information about today's topic, please visit our podcast page at lazanasmith.com forward slash podcast. Additionally, please subscribe to your podcast wherever you download your and receive your podcasts. And also, hey, sign up for our firm's client news brief so you don't miss the latest in the world of California public agencies. Until next time, for me and Jen and Haley, take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.